This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. Konnichiwa New Zealand and welcome to all my listeners at Access Radio Taranaki Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawks Bay, Arrow Radio Masterton and I'm your host Neville Wallace broadcasting from Har for the next 30 minutes. Today I have only three guests, Nuffield Scholar, Kerry Walsnop, Philip Duncan and Barbara Kerrigan. Haven't much time today but let's learn where Kerry Walsnop has travelled on her last section of her Nuffield Scholarship and by the way, this is the first of a two-part series. Well, my guest this evening is Kerry Wasnop, Gisborne Sheep, the Beef Farmer, and we're going to be hearing a little bit more from Kerry as to where she went and what she did on her Nuffield Scholar. Good evening, Kerry. Good evening, Neville. Right, just give the listeners a little brief expose of the Nuffield Scholarship itself, can you? How long has yep. it been going? Um, oh, golly, now you put me on the spot. Um, it was commenced post-World War Two, so decades and decades and decades. Um, and it was in response to the British desire to really increase food production in the UK and how are they going to do this in the face of what were, you know, obviously really big challenges yeah. rebuilding post the war. And... Um, Lord Nuffield uh, had previously travelled uh, for his motor company uh, business and had really um, taken an immense amount of value from what he learned from overseas jurisdictions. So when he was approached uh, about starting a, um, a scholarship uh, that would bring you know the knowledge from other places back to the UK to be a catalyst for better productivity he really got in behind that and, and the scholarship was uh, was begun. And ever since that time, scholars have uh, left the country that they are uh, awarded a scholarship. In the early days, they've gotten a ship and they went for six months yeah. around a huge, huge commitment, just literally yeah. had to leave your family, leave your job and, and go and spend half a year somewhere else and bring back what you learned. And, of course, that's morphed in modern times. We have airplanes, and so we, we don't spend a month on a ship. Um, and so in the New Zealand context, it's 16 weeks of travel. And the expectation with that is that you will produce a research report at the end of it that really uh, illuminates a topic that's important to New Zealand. And, obviously, yourself as a scholar, usually. <laughs> usually yeah. you, How many of you... How many of you went, Kerry? I had a look on uh, Google and I see that there were three of you this time. Is that correct? Uh, four. Uh, yeah. So 2023 year, which uh, this time last year, I, I was a uh, 2023 scholar. Um, so my the year that I'm doing the scholarship is in 2023. And then very shortly next week, they will announce the scholars for next year. And uh, I... I presume it'll be a similar number. Um, it historically has been uh, more and less at different times, depending on uh, 
factors such as you know funding and, and sponsorship. So it's very, very generous scholarship uh, in terms of what it enables you to do um, and certainly the, the expectation that goes along with that is that you're an ambassador for New Zealand and that you share what you learn as widely as you can. Now, when I spoke to you last time, you were busy packing your suitcase ready to go away for, I think it was the third or was it the final instalment of your trip. Where did you go and what countries did you look at? So the last trip, uh, which I think I got back about two weeks ago, uh, was in Australia for 10 days uh, talking to policy people and um, my research topic uh kind of investigating that over there. And then from Australia, went to Argentina. Um, from Argentina, we went to Ireland, and then Ireland to France, and then from France to Poland, and Poland to New Zealand. So it was a very full-on, uh, just over six weeks. And in each country, uh, just an extraordinary amount of immersion in the different agricultural systems that these countries have and their policy and the way that their uh, farming uh, systems work, um, just really trying to get a good understanding of, you know, what is the context that growers in, in these different countries operate in. Right, so Australia, was there any similarities in Australia to New Zealand other than it's pretty blim and flat, a hell of a lot of desert, and creeping crawlies. <laughs> yeah, so fortunately I didn't have to get up too close and personal with anything uh, poisonous. Um, yeah, so I think probably I was more struck by the differences than the similarities. Obviously we have similarities in our um, kind of, you know, camaraderie, uh, trans-Tasman, you know, um, kind of rivals, <laughs> siblings kind of. But, but in terms of the challenges and the, the type of farming that happens in Australia, we're very, very different to mainland Australia. We're probably quite similar to Tasmania, um, but we're also quite different in the contribution that we make to our economy. So uh, agriculture in Australia, it's export proportion is, is not the, the, the billions of dollars of trade exported from agriculture is not substantially more than what comes from New Zealand. And that was quite shocking to me. You see the, the footprint of Australia and you think, oh, my gosh, they must produce far, far more than us. And yet, in, in terms of the value of export receipts, it's actually not really the case. Like, it's, it's not even double, I don't think. Um, and primarily, that's a reflection of the quality of the climate that we have here. We grow things really, really well, and they have enormous, enormous tracts of land, but it's incredibly challenging to farm a lot of it. And so they they do have uh, the benefit of a large area, but they also have a climate that they spend a lot of time battling. What about yeah. the, the so next country, Kerry, that would be uh, in similar climate to New Zealand as far as farming goes? Uh, so Ireland is very similar to us. Oh. They have, I actually got off the plane after being in Argentina and when we landed in Ireland and I thought, oh my goodness, I really feel 
like it was raining and it was just like, and everything was green and I sort of thought oh I feel a little bit this you know I feel a little bit like uh like this sort of it felt familiar um and I, I think the other thing like we have a great affinity for the Irish we have a lot of Irish people come here a lot of Kiwis go to Ireland um I think the approach is is similar in, in terms of our, our nature we love we love to be given a go um we have think in long had the benefit of far more opportunity in agriculture. The Irish system has been quite constrained by intergenerational farming. It's been constrained by quota systems that limited what you could produce and how you could produce it. Um, they are much more supported by the EU in terms of uh, the payments, land-based payments, etc. Uh, very, very different way of earning a living. Very, very few Irish farmers are, uh, you know, farming is the main income. The vast majority are, uh, you know, they have multiple, <laughs> have multiple incomes in, in farming quite often is not even the, the dominant income. Because I understand they get a, a subsidy just to make it uh, clear for people that will be possibly viewing this. New Zealand and Australia would be the only farming systems that don't get a handout from the government, wouldn't it? Yeah, we have, I hadn't appreciated just how alone we are in our uh, independence, I suppose. Uh, we, we are at the mercy of the market 100%. There's, there's not really anywhere else uh, that I struck where... Um, if, if the market doesn't pay you, the whole industry could fall over tomorrow and nobody would save you. You know, that, that's, that's, we very much leave, um, we, we leave it to the market to decide whether this enterprise should be viable or not. And saving, uh, the exception of obviously enormous cyclones, there's, there's no, um, you know, there's no intervention from government in that regard. And that's very much in contrast, especially with what you see in Europe. So in Europe, there's a very strong drive to keep populations in the rural areas, to keep food production happening locally, to keep uh, strong rural economies prospering, because they believe that it has a lot of associated values and that it's a point of pride that you have uh, an export industry or you have you know, self-sustaining food production. There's very, very little appetite, urban or provincial, for displacement or replacement of rural jobs with urban jobs. Um, that focus on reorienting the economy in favour of something other than farming, really the only other place that I struck it was the ne Netherlands. Everywhere else it was kind of the opposite. They're trying to augment and protect what farming they have. So what did you come across any of those countries that were sort of protesting against some of those government regulations supporting groundswell? Um, so there's definitely, I think, unanimously everywhere I went, there's, there's quite a cynicism with relation to politics. There is deep suspicion of um, a lot of the motives and, and effectiveness behind a lot of the policies that are being developed. Um, but relatively few places have the level of disconnection between the aims of 
policy and the outcomes that New Zealand has. So the Netherlands is the only other place where the sense of hostility and kind of, um, uh, what do you call it, the, the level of farmer confidence and their sense of being valued was as low as you was I feel that it, that it is in New Zealand. Uh, it's palpable when you come back here, having come to, from other countries where, yes, they have expectations that farmers will deliver environmental good. They have, they totally have those, but they are using public money to deliver those public goods. Oh. They, want, they want to work with farmers and help them to deliver the change that is for wider society, not just for farmers. And, and so while there's frustration with politics, broadly speaking, farmers don't feel as though they are being undermined uh, to the extent that I came back to New Zealand and I really thought, wow, we are, we're in trouble. You can, you can just feel it in the people that you talk to. You can sense it in, in all of the things that are, um, you know, going across the airwaves and um, social media and in newspapers. We are lacking optimism. We are lacking a sense that we're valued and we don't know what to do about it. And, and that's not a feeling that's shared across most of the world. Most of the world is optimistic about their agriculture. They are passionate about protecting it. There's actually laws in some countries that are dedicated to ensuring that it doesn't drop below a certain level. Um, you know, extraordinary measures being taken to diversify the tools that farmers have to enable them to step up to these increased expectations. Um, we are the only country in the world that I struck that is using one tool to deliver change, and that tool is regulation. And I think we, I certainly hadn't understood just how alone we are in taking that approach. It's, it's not shared by anyone else. Wow. That blows me away, Kerry, because the thing that I see out of all this... And we'll be back with Kerry Warsnop. 2023 Nuffield Scholar next week. Let's hear Philip Duncan discussing our fluctuating weather patterns. And by the way, we had a frost here the other day and it's November. Well, good morning, Philip Duncan. You're a man on a mission. You are busy this morning. What is the predicament of New Zealand's weather for the next, well, probably the rest of the month because it's, as we discussed, it's a living thing, isn't it, our weather? Yeah, it is. The, the weather, even when it's not moving very much and it feels sort of stagnant, um, it's still yeah, living and, and breathing, if you like. Um, High-pressure zones, when you actually watch them on animated wind maps, they kind of look like lungs. They, they, they expand and then they reduce and then they expand again. So every time it does that, that moves rain and wind around the outer edges of the high to different places. And so... Um, in New Zealand, we get these squash zones, which I like to t talk about, where you'll have three days of windy easterlies, high pressure to the south with a big low to the north, that kind of setup. And so every time the high gets a little bit stronger, it can push those gale force winds back where they just came from or keep them north of New Zealand. Or if it shrinks a little bit, then that wind and rain can slide further down the country than was forecast. So, yeah, everything is all moving. They're all moving parts. And... Um, but high pressure is probably the biggest driver of our weather because 
it's sort of like the mountains in the sky and the low pressure of the rain goes for the path of least resistance around those highs, just like rivers do around our mountains on land. And so we, we do track the highs, we track the lows around it, and it's, yeah, this time of year going into November, I think we're going to be seeing more high pressure out over Australia and into the Tasman, and that should bring in more westerlies for New Zealand after what's been really a, a few weeks of southerlies coming through and making making for a lot of places colder than they normally would be as you kick off November. I don't know about you, Neville, but I've been, you know, been using the heat pumps in the mornings because it's still a bit cold. Um, and, you know, that's not always the case by November. Normally by now you're sort of feeling like summer's getting closer. Those south southeasterlies and southeasterlies are not warm, are they? They are not, no. And that's certainly what we've been seeing. Hawke's Bay yeah. have had it wider upper. You know, a lot of places have had lower temperatures over the last couple of weeks. So hopefully we're seeing bit more of an end to that now and a bit more of the summer warmth uh, coming back in. Philip, I understand when I read uh, Farmers Weekly that you talk to the odd farmer about the weather. I don't know what some I know one of them is a retired farmer like myself, but just retired, so he's still got a handle on the weather. Do you get any conversations with uh, fruit growers, for instance? Uh, we don't get as many um, with with the fruit growers. Uh, they do get nervous around things like thunderstorms in particular and frosts. Um, so we, you know, we have some services for that, and there are other guys out there that do frost forecasting because it's quite a niche job. But yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting um, country to live in with all the different types of people, and, and even in Australia with the videos we're doing there now, we're getting the same thing. You know, I said there's going to be fifteen millimetres of rain for Victoria, which will be good news for those who need rain. And I got my um, first comment back was, you were pointing at the wheat belt. We don't want any rain at the moment. We're harvesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you're, you're trying out one person and that help uh, is annoying for someone else. And that's the nature of weather forecasting. I was going to say that is exactly the weather. It's not what's good for one is not the other. And it just sounds like a bloody game of rugby to me, Philip. Yeah, it is. It is like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, some better news. You've got an alerting app. Could you tell the listeners more about what they can expect? Yeah, so we are launching this new app very soon. Uh, for those who are using our current app, might have noticed already that it's um, falling over a bit, not working as good as it used to. And so that is um, that has to be replaced. So we've, we've built this new app, and it's not just uh, an app. It, it does alerts. And so you'll be able to set your own criteria to get met service alerts or to get um, our weather forecast alerts, and you can choose whatever criteria you want. And so there are free services and paid services uh, paid for those alerts. And then the actual free app is a big upgrade for what we've got now, and it merges the two websites that we've got, Weather Watch and Rural Weather, and you'll be able to create your own dashboard where you can say, well, I want the radar top of the page, and then I want my forecast under that. And then other people might be, I need to know the 10-day forecast. I want that at the top of the page. So you get to build it up as you want it and display it how you want it. And then also there's this additional service for, for getting alerts pushed to your phone or your device. And so that... That will give people a heads up on things. If you want to know, you know, if it's going to be pouring with rain, you, um, 20 millimetres or more, uh, you'll get an alert for it, you know, it's up, up to several days out if you need to. So it's, it's a fun, exciting thing. We're not quite ready to launch it yet, but it's hopefully going to be either at the very end of November or the very, very beginning of December. Either way, it's, a, it's hopefully less than a month away. 
Well, that sounds as though it'd be a useful tool for anybody because there's, uh, I just heard the other day somebody talking about the storm systems and drainage in different towns, cities. It is obviously an app that could be useful for them as well. Yeah, that's right. And this is all about, you know, as we were just saying, everyone's got different needs. And so rather than saying, here is your forecast, here's the information we think is most important, um, now now the public will have the ability to go in there and change all that and say, actually, no, we, we really do believe in, um, you know, th- these, are, these are the important things to us. And so um, it just allows people to shape the forecast around their business a lot more than how we do it now. And the, the push alerts are, are fantastic. You know, I'm a weather nerd. <laughs> I live yeah. looking at weather maps all the time, and yet I'm still amazed at how often these alerts surprise me. Um, you know, the wind, wind coming up next week or something might be gale force in Auckland. And, and, I, and I might have seen the maps and kind of thought it might be a little windy, but didn't think it was going to be that bad. And so that's where the um, alerts come in very, very handy. So, yeah, excited to launch it in the, in, within a month. Oh, well done. Thank you, Philip Duncan. You're a man on a mission. We'll let you continue your valuable work this morning. Cheers, mate. Much appreciated. Barbara reminds us about Armistice Day and talks about schools and their Trees for Survival project. Well, good morning, Barbara. On the 105th Remembrance of Armistice Day on the 11th of November, 1918. Good morning. Yes, yes, good morning, Neville. And uh, it is always important to remember. And uh, I do think that... uh, you know, while ANZAC uh, and some uh, recognitions around ANZAC have been growing, um, our armistice could actually get a bit more attention because I think we forget and we look at uh, all of the things going on in the world today and we wonder what on earth we learnt uh, from the awful wars we had back in those days and it feels like not a lot. Uh, and it's really good for, I think, the young people to realise the freedom that we now have uh, because of those people that lost their lives and went and fought for us back in the day. So, um, yeah, we would all um, be good to have everyone sparing a thought for, for those people um, at this time. Uh, I've had a, quite a week working around nature. Um, I'm still sort of, while we're waiting for a government uh, to be formed, still working my way around schools and the electorate, uh, having a look at uh, Trees for Survival, who are working in a at a number of schools around the area, um, doing a great job. They're supplying really, really small trees to school children who pop them up, put them in a trolley-type thing. They have irrigation uh, coming down, and when they get big enough to transplant out, they go and plant them on a local farm. And it's a great idea. And I, one of the schools I went to the other day, Pokeru, not too far from Te Aumutu, underneath their trolley also had hanging baskets, uh, growing strawberries and things in them so that they could actually capture that extra water that came down from the sprinkler. And I thought, oh, that was a pretty cool idea too. So, um, good to be able to get that generation realising that, um, they can contribute and they can help a local farmer. Uh, plant some trees along uh, waterways or some, you know, shelter belts or whatever, um, and um, making their contribution in the community and realising the value of all that. So that's been great. Um, also spent some time at Parongia uh, last weekend with the 21st birthday of the Restoration Society. 
So their big mission was to bring Kokako back to uh, Mount Porongia, uh, which they've successfully done. It uh, doesn't mean the job is finished. It just means that we have to be ever vigilant around the pests uh, and, um, and the critters that kill the eggs and stop the birds from surviving. But they were basically had none there. And um, over the last 21 years, they've actually managed to bring them back. And I remember going to a concert a few years ago with uh, Dame Malvina, Major who uh, did some fundraising for them and I've myself released a Kokako uh, on Porongia um, back before COVID as well. So it's a pretty special place. And then um, I spent some time uh, near Christchurch Airport this week with a group that's just launched called Hunters for Conservation. Uh, and one of their major spokespeople is Dame Linda Top, and she's a fantastic person. People will know her as one of the top ones. Uh, she loves getting out in nature, loves doing a bit of fishing. Uh, we had fish and game there. Um, they've got this beautiful lake where they've actually restored it from a quarry. Uh, they've got salmon in there now, and um, it's a great opportunity for people local in Christchurch uh, to be able to go fishing uh, and enjoy that experience without having to, you know, go far and wide. So, but I do think in terms of the role that I've had this year so far in conservation as a spokesperson that it is the hunters and the fishers that are going to help conservation. It is the farmers that are going to help conservation. It is the industries and the infrastructure people that help conservation. And even in roading, if I look at Mount Messenger, the amount of uh, conservation that's going on alongside that project uh, and the biodiversity increases that are ha- that are um, they're working on to happen there, um, everything kind of has to fit with nature, but it doesn't mean that we have to do without... Uh, uh, all of the things that we currently have because we can't go back 2,000 years because we had no people uh, and we do have people and we do have houses and we do have roads and we do have the needs for things. And any room I go into, I, I say to people, look around the room and tell me, find me something that isn't grazed, grown, dug or extracted and if it's not a fish, what is it? And largely it doesn't exist. So we really do rely on our uh, our soil, our earth, uh, the minerals that are underneath our earth and the animals that graze on top of it uh, for the life that we lead, the food that we eat, the computers we have, the cars we have, even if they're electric cars, they actually, uh, you know, the batteries are made uh, from the earth, the car is made from components that come from the earth or under the earth. Um, And so if we're going to have the things that we want uh, as humans, we have to realise that conservation isn't a perfect science on its own. It needs to live in tandem uh, with all of the other things that we need. Um, I've been in Wellington twice this week as well. Um, I hadn't been there uh, apart from trying to get there one day on a plane that uh, couldn't land. Um, but I hadn't been there for three weeks, and I was down there for two things. One was the Nuffield Scholarship presentations. So we heard from the four current scholars and uh, the um, announcement of the new scholars um, for 2024 were made, and I always loved watching those people. They come in, they have an idea, they travel, they come back, their mind is so expanded, they're trying to think, now how can I 
make that into a document and report back in a way that um, is actually readable, achievable to write, um, not too long that somebody's going to read it because their minds do really expand when they get out overseas. Um, and the other thing I, that was uh, happening in Wellington a couple of nights later was the Keep New Zealand Beautiful group doing the uh, beautiful awards uh, and presenting awards to uh, tiny towns, large towns, small cities. And interestingly enough, the small cities, the competition was between New Plymouth and Whanganui, and New Plymouth won out, but they're both uh, beautiful cities. So they were quite local and close to home, neither in the electorate but uh, close to where I focus. And so, um, yeah, it was pretty exciting to be there. The ultimate uh, prize was won by Taupo. Uh, but it was a really good night rewarding people just for uh, the way that uh, their towns and cities are kept beautiful. So it's been quite a week uh, focusing on, on nature, the natural, birds, nice towns, uh, and then people who want to travel overseas to bring new ideas back to New Zealand to solve some of the challenges that we currently have. So that's been my week, Neville. Oh, well done. Thank you, Barbara. Well, that's my lot for today. Remember where to tune in next week and we'll talk to you again. Sayonara. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website accessradiotaranaki.com